Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, and welcome to Everything is Fine. We are your hosts. I'm Kim France. And I'm Jen Romolini. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, everybody. I hope your New Year was peaceful and productive and happy or whatever you wanted it to be. Every every single thing you wanted it to be. I hope that too. Um, we have an excellent show today, Kim. I am super psyched. Such a good show. Such a good guest. I'm so excited for you guys to listen to Grace Bondi. She is just so inspiring and smart and real and kind and had so many smart things to say about just living life. No, and living life as your authentic self, living a uh, a more genuine and fulfilled life. I mean, I've been thinking about this since we recorded the episode. She's so wise and which, you know, she goes with this book, which I really recommend to everyone, um, Collective Wisdom, which lessons inspiration and advice from women over 50. She interviewed all of these amazing women, like a hundred plus amazing women for this book. I don't know if it's actually a hundred plus. I just said that, but I, she, (laughs) she interviewed amazing, amazing women. And there's just so much wisdom in this book that, um, I, I really, I love the book and I love her. Um, but what are you thinking about in the new year? What, what are your intentions? Do you have one or two? Yes, let's talk about intentions because that's such a better word than resolutions. Yes. My intention, my intention is to get back to writing. Excellent. To really do some writing to figure out if, you know, what shape that's going to take and what that's going to be. That's mm-hmm. my main resolution. And also I I need to start exercising. I really and I know that's the most cliched New Year's thing to say, but it must happen. I just have to. It doesn't I don't, I don't think you can be my age and not have exercise be part of your life. And I, while I do walk a lot with the dog, I don't do anything cardio. Yeah. And, you know, I've got this janky knee, which makes it kind of hard, but I'm going to. I have to. What about you? Um, I want to be kinder to myself. I really, that is a real thing that I want to work on is just, just kindness, self-kindness, self-compassion. Mm-hmm. I, that's, a, that's a big thing for me. I um I want to sort out what's going on with my health because my stomach is still somehow fucked oh. up and I really would like to solve that because it's um I just want to get to the bottom of it and like I'm willing to kind of do anything like I'm not opposed to like I don't know do I have to start microdosing do I have you know what I mean like yeah. I'm kind of open to whatever is this an emotional situation like what is it mm-hmm. um Obviously, I need to finish my book this year. Contractually, I have to finish my book this year. And I want to um I want to just stop running away from the things that scare me. Like, you know, when we talk a lot about like the wah 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 Charlie Brown voices mm-hmm, of like, mm-hmm. you know, finances or this. I really want to sort of steer into those things and 
be less fearful of like the sort of last things that make me feel uncomfortable or ashamed or, you know, like I want to get my finances together. Like we don't have a will. My husband and I don't have a will. I have to have a will. Yeah, you do need a will. It's an, yeah, you have to have one. I got one when I got divorced, you know, because I had to, because if anything had happened to me during that period, everything would have gone to him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, but I just, you know, I just divided, I just said, first, first of all, this reminds me that my nephews have all said to me at different points in my life, their lives. So you're leaving everything to us, right? Cause you don't have kids. <laughs> kids. Jesus Christ. I know. And I'm like, I don't know who told you that, but that's not the plan. And also B, don't expect any money to be left. Right. Right. No, inheritance stuff is really is it can be really weird. Inheritance stuff can be a, a, a really weird situation. But just that sort of like, I just want to clean up. Like, I think yep. that this year I really want to clean up. I, 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 I told my husband, I want to spend January getting rid of all of our shit. I'm so sick of having so much shit. Like, what is yeah. all this shit in my house? I don't even it's like because it. You haven't, it's because you haven't moved. You've been living in the same place and you accumulate shit. If you moved every several years like me, then you would have less shit. It's true. Because we have been living in this house for um, the last eight years, I think. And that's a long time. And like, that's a long time. And like several rounds of kid gear, like, I don't know, there's like a pack and play downstairs that I was like, oh, maybe someday. But anyway, so yeah, I want to, I want to just clean. I want a cleaner life, I think. Yeah. I mean, I agree with you. I definitely want to stop hearing the peanuts voice. You know, when people are explaining things to me, I want to actually be processing it. And who was the guest who did such an art? articulate, smart description of what happens. Was it Sabrina? No, it was, was um, it? Julie Lithcott Haynes. Yes. Who I'd like to yes. have back on, to be honest. <laughs> I yeah, feel like we're not great. finished we with could, her. Yes. Yeah, we could both use her. Mm -hmm. um, but no, she had a really beautiful explanation of, 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 of how that happens that made me feel like okay, maybe I'm not such a freak that I'm this way. And maybe this isn't the hardest thing to turn around. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And also like, where are you dissociating and why are you dissociating? And like, yeah. it's fine. Like anything, writing, dealing with, you know, finance stuff. It's just one step at a time. It doesn't yeah. have to all be bitten off all at once. You know, it's just, okay, you just start, you, you decide you're going to start down the path and you just go one step at a time and yeah. you, you, you endure the discomfort and often the boredom. <laughs> <laughs> it's the discomfort for me. I do not like being, I do not like being made to feel uncomfortable. Yeah. It's, un, I, I can't sit with that discomfort very well. That would be a nice intention for 2022 yeah. to learn how to just live with a little discomfort and not immediately go stare at my phone or call somebody or any of the other number of things I do when I have a, just an uncomfortable moment. Yeah. 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 I think that's right. I think that's right. I actually think that you've gotten to the source of all of our intentions, which is learning to live and sit in discomfort and just be like, okay. What is this about? Because that's another one of mine is being less reactive because I am yep. so fucking reactive and I, I don't want to be. I want to be able to have that that moment of pause before mm -hmm. and just and it's sometimes not a moment. It's like an hour. It's a day. It's a week. But yeah. having giving myself that giving myself that time to process without just reacting because I don't mm -hmm. want to feel uncomfortable. So I'm just like, got to fix it. And right now fix, 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 you know, and it's not, yeah. you have to have your fucking wits about you to fix something appropriately. Yeah, it's true. It's true. You can't be in that heightened state and expect for things to go down the way they're supposed to. No, you can't. Um, anyway, Grace Bonnie, amazing. Also amazing, inspiring in terms of pivoting, like leaving yep. behind a business that she, des, design sponge, which she'd had for years, becoming an author. And now she's going back to school. Like all of that is just, 
I just found her to be amazing and and inspiring, not to keep using that word, but it was, it, this is a good episode to start the year with, I think. Yep, it really is. So let's get into it. Let's get into it. Our guest today is Grace Bonney. Grace is the author of the best-selling books in the company of women and Design Sponge at Home. She founded Design Sponge, a daily website dedicated to the creative community, which reached nearly 2 million readers per day for 15 years and is now officially archived in the Library of Congress. She also founded Good Company, a print magazine and podcast about creative entrepreneurs, and After the Jump, a podcast about creatives. Her most recent book is Collective Wisdom, Lessons, Inspiration, and Advice from Women Over 50. Grace lives in New York's Hudson Valley with her wife and their pets. She is currently working toward a graduate degree in marriage and family therapy at Syracuse University, and we are so excited to have her here today. Welcome, Grace. Hi. Hello. Hi. Thank you for having me. I'm really happy to be here. We're so happy to have you, and your book is so right up our alley, exactly what we're doing on this podcast every week. So it just was the perfect thing to come at the perfect time. Um, and I want to talk about uh, this book because it includes profiles of women over 50, but also profiles of lots of intergenerational female friendships. Uh, what made you want to write this book and why this approach? You know, that was actually the original inspiration for the book was um, a friendship I had with a woman I met here volunteering named Georgine. And we were friends for several years um, until she passed away when she was 91, I believe. And that friendship, I mean, it, I could talk for hours about what that friendship taught me and how it really inspired me to kind of get offline and actually leave what I was doing at Design Sponge and pursue something a little bit more in person. And I realized like, I learned so much from her and I don't think that she is someone who I would have typically, you know, written about or profiled on Design Sponge back in those days. And I realized I just want to read a book full of people like Georgine and I want to celebrate friendships like the ones we had and to hopefully inspire other people to try to seek out those types of friendships. So when I imagined this book, I knew that, I mean, I, I always kind of enjoy doing like solo profiles of people and giving space for them to tell their story in their own words. But I really wanted to weave in those intergenerational pieces because I think that when we talk about age, sometimes we, and this isn't because of us, I think, I think it's because of just ageism as an oppressive system, just likes to silo people and say like, oh, okay, you're older, you stand on this side of the room, you're younger, quote unquote younger, you stand on this side of the room. And I really wanted this book to be like, no, 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 let's, let's all be in the same space together yes, let's give space and reverence to people who have lived and understood more than we have already. But let's also remember that we both have things to contribute to the conversation. So that's kind of where I was coming from with this project. Yeah. So when you say women like Georgine, what were the qualities you were looking for in the women who you included in this book? The qualities were, were varied. I think that resilience is a tricky word for me because I think sometimes it glosses over the systems that need to be broken down that I wish we didn't require resilience to survive. Um, but I, I think all of these stories have a degree of resilience. But I wanted to hear from people who I thought had lived and were still living lives that were full of curiosity, who had, whether that was in the form of athleticism or parenting or artistry, like all, all over the place. I really wanted to hear a wide range of stories from people from completely different backgrounds, um, whether that's regionally or culturally. And I think this book really, I, I think I kind of got close to that goal. I think I could have filled like a hundred books with stories like that. But it was really important to me that I learned the lessons I got from the last book. Um, when I wrote in The Company of Women, one of the major pieces of feedback I got, which I really appreciated, was like, where are all of the women in rural communities? Because I did. Mm -hmm. I just was completely biased towards cities because that's what I've mostly known my whole life. So for this project, I made sure that that was the first place I started was to reach out to people who not only lived in rural communities, but people I knew from my life to say, like, who are the elders in your communities that are not getting the appreciation they deserve? And I, my goal was to not only include a book of like famous people that everybody has heard of, but people who I think have lived ordinary and extraordinary lives that maybe we wouldn't always hear about in a print project like this. So I like that weaving of both. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. And the coastal thing, not keep keeping it 
So that I love that, that you've really focused on, you wanted it to be about all different parts of the country because we really can only hear, we, we often are only hearing from people in New York and LA, you know, mm -hmm. like that's it. And then that's such a skewed, it's such a skewed point of view. You know, I love that there was so much diversity, not only in, you know, in racial diversity and able diversity, like all of that, but also geographic diversity. I thought that was so important. No, it may be the most inclusive book I've ever taken a look at. Oh, well, I hope that there are many more like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But truly, truly, you took great care with that and it really shows. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's something I did not always do with my work and it's something I'm still learning to do better. Um, and I'm really grateful that in the, I would say like the midlife of Design Sponge and my middle, middle age days of Design Sponge, I think I got called in by a number of people in the community that were like, hey, we see that you're paying attention to these ideas of inclusivity and equity, but you're paying attention to them as if they don't exist within your own world. Like you have mm. a role in them perpetuating them. And I had a number of conversations one-on-one -on -one that could have been very easily been call-outs. And there was a really gracious gift I was given by several people who were like, let me help you see what you're not seeing and how you're a very big part of this problem. And it changed the way I did everything, not only a design sponge, but with all of the book projects. And then this book in particular, I'm working on trying to undo what I've learned about the financial structure of books, which is that the author should make all the money. And I did that within the company. Um, within the company of women, I took all of the profit from that book. And I never saw a problem with that. And right. it wasn't until I started better understanding, like, just, I mean, the massive issues of equity or the lack of equity in publishing that I realized, like, it's completely not okay for me as a white person to be making all of this money off of people, primarily people of color, sharing personal stories. So from the jump of this book, the entire advance, less the cost of producing it, um, was divided up evenly among all of the people in the book. And then 50% of the profits of the book will be divided equally among all the women in the book in perpetuity. And that's not a perfect system, but it's a system that I hope works. And that one that will, if the book does well, will hopefully at least like take everybody out to a nice dinner once a year or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I just really think there's a lot to be divested from in terms of the way the publishing structure works, because I think it's set up for people who look like me to not even question whether or not we should be the only people profiting from a project. Like not a single person I've ever worked with who is white has said to me like, wait, what? Oh, how can I do this? Like, what does this look like? Everyone has just said like, why are you doing that? You won't make any money. And I was like, yeah, I probably won't make a ton of money or any money maybe, but I would rather I walk away from this project feeling like I have done everything I could, at least that I can think of now at this stage in my life, to appreciate and financially compensate the women in this book. And I think last week I got to send out 113 checks, which was wow, like really, really meaningful to me. Um, and I'm, I'm glad that that's how this project worked out so far. It's amazing. Just amazing. I love that so much because you're really sort of walking the walk, right? And it's like so often we we do these, th we, we do things for ourselves and then they kind of feel hollow, like the accomplishment even mm. feels a little hollow, you know, it's like, oh God. And this kind of just turns everything on its head and it, it really lets you live your values in a profound way and a very open and public way. And I, I like, I like that a lot. And I bet it, I bet it feels better to be putting this work out into the world, to be sharing the profits of the work. I bet that feels like a better, just a better thing. Like who cares how much money you make? The feeling is what will last. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, 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 it's nuanced. I think yeah. that I am in a position to be able to make decisions like this because I have financially benefited so much from the work I've done, not with Design Spend. It did not make very much the right. money at Design Spend, but um, with In the Company of Women, that book did quite well. And so I've been able to live off of that book for a while. And that's been really important because the last few years of Design Sponge were financially a huge struggle. So I didn't pay myself those last few years in exchange for trying not to make any cuts across the board to anybody else working at Design Sponge. And I'm in a lot of, I have a lot of privilege, a ton, in so many different forms that I think I am somebody who can make a decision like this. I don't right. expect this model from everybody working in publishing, right. but I do think that there, there are a lot of ways to do this. This was just one of them. Uh, and I'm sure like five years from now, I'll look back and be like, oh, this would have been so much better if I had also done this thing or done it differently. So 
I think in terms of that walk, I'm, I think of that walk as like a series of trips, <laughs> just like <Yes>. constantly <laughs> tripping, like picking myself back up and being like, oh, but then I think the catch is not assigning shame to those trips and to just be like, it's a part of the process. Exactly. Having some compassion for yourself. And you're trying. You're tr you're trying, right? Like that's what we can do in the moment. We can try the, with the, the knowledge we have, we can try the best we can to do the right thing, right? Um, so you included so many inspiring women in this book. What would you say to a woman over 40 who is sort of struggling to find an inspiration, find the, you know, I feel like the map kind of ends after 40 to some degree. And I, you know, and some people that can be very exhilarating, but for other people, it can really, it can feel like you're really lost. That feeling of loneliness. And that was something that came up a lot in these interviews. And mm -hmm. it was a very bittersweet revelation for me because I, I think I assumed some of that very naively would just get easier as I got older, that I would care less about how many friends I had, like how broad my community was. I just thought that that would matter less. And in fact, it matters far, far more. But mm -hmm. I think the way I'm figuring out how to do that now is the opposite of what I learned in the earlier part of my life, which was I was always seeking out numbers like, well, if I reach this many people design spun, surely, you know, some small percentage of them will turn into real friends. And that's so embarrassing to admit out loud. But like, <laughs> I just didn't have a lot of friends and I built a community where I felt comfortable and I did find friendship in that way. But a lot of those friendships existed on the Internet and they're totally valid and that's great. But when it comes to getting older and just like as my values shift, I want to find that locally. I don't want to find it online anymore or have online be the primary source of that. So I think like looking for that in your community in person is really crucial. How do you do that, Grace? Because I mean, there have been times, I mean, I, I feel good now. I have, I have a good number of friends. I'm in a relationship, but I've had times when I actually thought like I should advertise on my own blog for friends. Yeah. Like it is so hard to find friends in adulthood. And I think even more challenging when you talk about these intergenerational friendships. So mm -hmm. how do you go about that? How do you make friends after 40, after 50? Everyone is different. So I can only speak to what my experience has been. But for me, it's been volunteering. And primarily, it's been volunteering because I am not there in a way where anyone connects me to the work I've done in the outside world. Mm -hmm. Like not a single person knows about, cares about, feels any sort of way about Design Sponge or any book I've written. Um, most people just know me as the wife of my wife, Julia. <laughs> They're like, oh, you're Julia's <laughs> wife. Like that's how most people know me and my volunteering capacity here. And that gave me a type of freedom that I didn't even, I think I knew I needed, but I had to experience to fully understand. And it made me realize that I had no clue who I was outside of my work. And that's something I'm still <laughs> unpacking. And it's really hard. Um, well, because we spend so long, we spend so much time in our 20s and 30s building our identity around our work. If we're a certain kind of person totally. who has been taught that that's where like your feelings of happiness and satisfaction come from. And your value. Yep. Absolutely. And I think if you've been raised and socialized as a woman, like I, a lot of that for me came in the form of like rebellion of like, oh, you're not expected to do this. So I'm going to prove just how good I can be at achieving every capitalist goal I can think of. Right. And mm -hmm. then realizing like no part of that system is ever going to make me feel fulfilled in the way that I would like to. But I didn't even realize that till I was probably two years out of Design Sponge. Like I had left. I was I was figuring out what the heck I was going to do with my life. And I I almost ran right back into it several times. I was like, this is too scary. I feel like I'm failing because I don't already have another job that's even more impressive or gives me a lot of money or something. And I got really hung up on just what are people thinking right now? And yeah. I it took a long time. Like I really thought I'd snap out of that real easily, but I didn't. And it took me quite some time. And I, I think for the first time in my life, I felt imposter syndrome. Like I'd never felt that at Design Sponge because it was such a personal, I mean, that was a deeply personal project for me. And so it never felt false because it was entirely based on what I was interested in. And now that I'm working in a in a field or working towards being in a field where it has very little to do with me, I'm realizing like, oh, I get to have the space to be a private person. And what does it mean to make decisions when nobody else sees them? 
or, you know, most people don't see them. And it's been liberating. And also it's sh it's still shining a light on the parts of me that are having a really hard time not turning everything into content. Like I still have that. That muscle is still quite strong, totally. as I'm sure you both understand. A hundred percent. And the performance of an identity, that what's underneath that? I, I think about that all the time. And there is that idea of like, who's watching? What are people thinking of me? When nobody's really thinking of you at all, you know, but you can't, when your identity is not only professional, but it's somewhat public, not that you're a celebrity, but it is the churn of the content and everything else. What, who are you underneath all of that, I think is such an interesting thing that starts to come up at this age. And especially if you walk away from something that was public, had some high power, you know, where am I actually? I, that it's. And, and I, I don't want to bring that up because what's remarkable to me is, I mean, first of all, I think it's remarkable you walked away from Design Sponge because even if there were financial issues there. It was a huge, huge success in many people's minds. I mean, I thought it was amazing. People adored it. And that's scary. And then you did these books and then you, then you, I wouldn't say you walked away from this. Maybe you'll do another book, but then you turned around and went to graduate school. I mean, that's a lot of pivots. How do you do that? Um, at this point in my life, it's kind of the only thing I know how to do, which is another thing I'm unpacking is because I mean, in the span of Design Sponge, I got married. Then I came, I got divorced. Then I came out at the same time. Then I got remarried. I launched all these different projects. I was like constantly pushing this like website, trying to make it be something that was more intersectional than it was at its creation, which was a very challenging move. I think I only know at this point kind of how to undo things I've already built. And hmm. I'm constantly in this process of like looking backwards, which is a problem. Like I, I need to learn how to just move forward and yeah. to accept that the things that came behind me were the best I could do at the time with the information I knew at the time. But I'm still in this like tricky middle space where I kind of want to go back and like tweak things or maybe like overanalyze them or something. So that's a place I'm still a little murky on. But I think I'm trying to learn that evolution can be less traumatic. <laughs> not always so dramatic. And that's that's still something I'm in the process of figuring out. Because right now, to me, change feels like it has to be earth shattering to be worth doing. And I think change can actually be like small and not that big of a deal. But that's something I feel like I haven't experienced a lot of. So I'm working on that right now. Small and right. slow. Sometimes, you know, and we, it's, it's almost, it's, we're not perceiving it. And the, the change that brings us a lot of joy, ultimately, we don't even know it's happening, right? It's like the transformation when it's slow. It's so like, wait, am I, is anything happening right now? Am I, am I okay? Am I, am I like moving towards something? Cause I think culturally we're programmed to be like sharks, you know, like always moving, always moving. And sometimes when the change is slow, it, we're impatient. We're worried that it's not going to work out. You know, it's like, so when there's action, it's easier. I feel like, and I don't know if this is your experience, but when there's action and we're creating action, it feels like we're doing something and it feels, it gives us this false sense of control, maybe. I think, I mean, I can only speak for myself. I think I, I was, and I'm still partially kind of addicted to the anxiety of it all. Like I just, mm -hmm. I like the like <gasps> huge upheaval, big change, like thing. To, and it's also as the person who worked in editorial, like it's content, it's something to talk about. And I think that's, right. that's so embarrassing to admit, but it's true. Like big, huge upheavals and big pivots are an excuse for me to like stop and write something about it. And I have forever processed by sharing online and my wife does not understand that at all. And it's like the complete mm. opposite. And I've been going through all, I, mean, I feel like I'm constantly in a health issue these days. And I've been dealing with a pretty big health challenge. And I was like, I don't know how I'm going to feel so alone in this thing. And she was like, well, we'll just, you know, we'll, we'll keep trying to find like the right doctor. And I was like, no, I'm just going to write about it on the internet. Like I'll find five people who have the same thing. And then, <laughs> and you know, within an hour, I found like a ton of other people who'd experienced the same thing I had. And I felt less alone. And whether or yeah. not it's like legitimate medical advice is besides the point. It's the like not feeling alone that I'm always chasing. So, you know, there's, there's something really valuable about talking about scary things in public. And that's that's part of why I wanted to work on this book was I expected us to be a little vulnerable and we ended up being a lot more vulnerable than I anticipated. And 
my, I actually had a concern about putting this book out at first. I thought it was too sad. <laughs> and my oh. publisher was like, no, it's just really honest. And I was like, but all the books I do are like, pull quote, pull quote, yay, inspiring quote. And I was like, no, this is a lot heavier, but it's because we're talking about real shit. Like we're talking about grief and death and loss and what it is to survive all these things and that you don't come away unscathed from difficult experiences. And I don't know. I think I'm I'm evolving into a place where I'm appreciating that slowness and all the feeling that comes with it. Because when you speed through life, you don't feel things as much. And that's always worked for me for a long time. And now yeah. that I'm slowing down, I'm feeling a lot more. And that's that's hard. You said something I thought was really interesting, which is that everybody needs community, but women need community even more. Why mm -hmm. is that? It's because every oppressive structure that we experience is dedicated to separating us from each other, whether that is ableism or sexism or patriarchy or any other type of ism that exists. Those systems exist because they are stronger when we are separate. And when we pull ourselves together and realize that, yes, we may not all be the same. We absolutely do not have the same experience. Um, but if we do have some things in common or if we have experienced similar oppressions, there is strength in numbers and there is strength in having somebody who knows the way, who can give you some advice about how to avoid or combat some of the things that you're going to be dealing with inevitably. It makes you stronger. And I think, and, and this isn't even, I feel like it's so beyond that idea of like the competitiveness that's bred into women to like see each other as threats. Like that's at a, that's at like the most base level. I think of this as like a lot deeper of just like, we are this interconnected network of of people who have experienced something similar. And I think of it as like almost like a tree root system. Like if we could just share some of the connections and the information that we have, we all get to like stand up a little stronger and a little straighter. And I just wish that we would tap into that a little bit more. And I'm, I found working on this book project that I think that is also a uniquely white experience because I don't feel very connected to like my culture or other people in my community. It's something I've really had to fight because every voice in my head is kind of like, oh, be, be suspicious of this. Don't, like, you know, don't, don't trust this entirely. And when I interviewed in particular Native and Indigenous women, there is such an inherent sense of community. And I'm sure of that a lot of that comes from having to survive just countless oppressions and atrocities that people like me have put onto them for years. Um, but I just, it was really nice to see that not all women are, I guess, skeptical of trusting each other in the way that I was kind of brought up to be. Yeah. So looking at not only aging, but community from a multicultural perspective was incredibly enlightening to me and beyond ways I even anticipated. Let's take a quick break for some ads. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Support for Everything is Fine comes from Ritual. So I love Ritual. Everyone knows I love Ritual. I talk about Ritual all the time. I particularly love its daily, their daily multivitamin. And I also really have been enjoying their melatonin. 
But the thing I love most about Ritual is their Hia Sera. It's a once daily skin supplement that's clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. In a clinical study, Hia Sera led to 3.6 times reduction in crow's feet wrinkles within 90 days as compared to a placebo. Hyacera led to 2.9 times increase in skin smoothness within 90 days as compared to a placebo. You can enhance your skincare routine from the inside out with one daily capsule essenced with soothing vanilla. I love Hyacera. It's been rigorously tested and validated. It's one of the industry leading sustainability. It, it meets, sorry, all of the industry leading sustainability standards. You know, I'm a beauty editor now. I am all about keeping my face plump and Hyacera absolutely has done that for me. I've been on it for months. I don't even know how long and I can really see a difference in the texture of my skin. My skin looks more juicy, I guess, is the best way to do it. Say it, do it. Ah. Okay, so you can start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash fine. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription to get today. That's ritual.com slash fine for 25% off. And we're back. I, I think that skepticism can start to wane as we get older. I think we do start to wake up to this reality. At least that's been my experience. But I did want to go back to something you said, because it's a theme that just keeps coming up. As we're shining a light more on middle age and older women, I'm seeing this happening, right? In, in capitalism and like, oh, we're going to profit off menopause and all of this. There is this idea that all this like toxic positivity and like girl boss ethos has to extend into older age, right? We have to be badasses and we have to give fewer fucks and we have to like, and I give so many fucks now. I feel, mm -hmm. I feel so open and porous and, and that is part of like becoming who you are is being, is being open. And if we're going to, I, I love that your book, I just want to validate this for you because I, I love that your book is kind of sad because it's real. Mm -hmm. And like this part of life is, 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 is weird and kind of sad grappling with your existence, coming to terms with and accountable for what you've done, what you still want to do, the limitations of your life. It can be sad. Plus grief. Confronting mm -hmm. your mortality. Confronting your mortality. I'm 57 years old. People I know are dying. Mm -hmm. Like, and it's not considered a crazy young death. That's yeah. what really fucks me up. You know, it's like that dealing with that mortality. That's a huge, that's just a huge thing. How can that not be sad? We get a lot of it, Grace. I'm we get a lot, not a lot, but occasionally comments from people saying that we're too negative about mm. this time of life. And how can you address it without addressing the challenges? Yeah. And I think what you're also like really walking around is the concept of ableism and the way that we live in a culture that not only devalues people that they are seeing as, I don't know, more, more closely aligned with disability and physical challenges and all of like cognitive challenges and things that we just associate with older age that are actually not limited to older age. Um, those things are really bred into us. And we we're taught that like, if we just do X, Y, Z, like eat a vegan diet, do Peloton and some other thing, like we'll all live forever. Like you can outlive illness, you can outlive disability, like all of that is a complete lie. And I think people who live with disabilities understand that better than anybody. And it's why I wanted to include so many disabled women in this book because so much of my understanding of my self-worth has been something I have learned in listening to other people with disabilities because I think you understand what it feels like to be completely sidelined from culture and to not to not be valued. And I mean, God, we've seen that in COVID in this big way that we haven't seen in a long time of just, you're just considered, you know, you're expendable. Like, it's all right. They were older. They were over 65. They had a coexisting you know, condition, whatever. Right. So everyone's constantly finding a way to push death, mortality, and disability away from them. But those yeah. things are all the norm. Like, those are a part of our lives on a daily basis. And I think finding ways to include people who live with disabilities, who live with chronic illness, for whom 
thoughts about mortality are just like, it's a part of life. You understand it. It can make a huge difference. Like I used to just be terrified of all those things until my own health just kind of took a direction I didn't expect it to. And I don't, it made me see just like, wow, I, I can't escape any of those things. So what am I going to do with the time that I have? And some of that time will be sad and scary dealing with health issues or, you know, fears of mortality. But I could also just get on with my life and try to appreciate what I have. And I've had so many people say to me like, oh, you're not even midlife yet. Like you're not middle age, blah, blah, blah. And I always just kind of laugh because like none of us know how long we're going to live. Like, exactly. I, I could die next week. I could die today. Like I have, I hope those things don't happen, but my middle age could have been 20. Like I have no idea. So I try to keep that mind frame as much as I can. Yeah. Our ideas about aging are like so weird in, in this country in particular, so fixed. So like, what is old? What is young? Like, do you feel young for your age? Like it's just all, it's just a not, it's not this way in other countries and in other cultures too. I mean, this is what we're talking about is in, in some ways, I, it's a very white sort of middle class like way of thinking like we're we're obsessed with youth and everything after that we're obsessed with a certain kind of frame a certain kind of color and everything after that is sort of like let's just not look at it right but i this this fixed idea about aging and how we lose our value i, I love that you really highlight that that's not true in this book that we actually don't lose our value, that we actually can be really engaged and productive and relevant too, because that's the other thing that we start to lose as we get older or the society wants us to lose is our relevance, you know? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, how did that, did that come up a lot in interviews, women feeling like they were going to be pushed to the sidelines, feeling like they were irrelevant? Did that, was that a thing that came up? Oh, yeah. And it was discussed from some perspectives I didn't expect, which was that some women found a sense of freedom in that of, of oh, I, not not only freedom from like the male gaze and things like that, but just kind of a like, yeah, people aren't paying as close of attention. So I am going to try some things I maybe wouldn't have felt comfortable to try when I felt like there were more eyes on me. And then we also discussed the flip side of that, which is that, yeah, it can feel pretty crappy to feel like people don't value you or see you anymore and you're sitting right there. And, and most notably, in an interview with, that I did with Patty Page in the book, who's an incredible baker, um, she was talking about how her hands were kind of deemed too old to be in photographs for her own cookbook. And they tried yeah. to bring in a model, like a younger, I don't know if it was a hand model, but just a younger person to use their hands. Young hands. And it, yeah. <laughs> and it, it broke my heart because I'm obsessed with hands. I wanted the whole book to just have millions of pictures of hands, but um, because we ended up having to kind of reshoot that we shot this during the pandemic, so I didn't get to go in person for everything. I couldn't get as many hand photos as I wanted, but there are a good amount in there because I just think our hands tell us so much about ourselves and like the lives we've lived. And I particularly love like hands that you can tell have done a lot of a lot of work of some sort. And I don't know that it, it really bummed me out to, to realize that that was something that she had internalized in this way of like, oh, yeah, there's not there's not value here. This is to be hidden. And I don't know. I think unpacking that that type of like internalized ageism was a big part of the conversations that we had. And I don't think people registered that as ageism right away. It was just kind of a like, oh, well, this is a given. Like you get older, people don't see you. And not only do they not see you, but they want to replace you. Mm -hmm. And that was you know, I don't think we like solved that problem, but we definitely investigated it from a lot of different angles. And some people cared a lot about that. And some people were like, okay, what's next? Who cares? <laughs> what was the best, what was some of the best advice you received from these women about aging or anything? I think the thing that stayed with me the most was just that evolution never stops. I will continue to change and understand and then unlearn lots of things if I'm lucky for a very long time and that I need to stop doing which is what I'm doing which is feeling ashamed of earlier versions of myself like if I don't embrace those earlier versions of myself and invite them to the table with my current and future versions of myself I can't actually appreciate where I am in life and so hard I didn't, it's so hard it's very very hard and I look back a lot and just think like ooh, oh so embarrassing so cringy so bad and I, when I interviewed um, Mabuba, who's about midway through the book, who's an incredible Iranian act 
activist who um, is a refugee in the U.S. now. And she talked about like literally visualizing herself sitting at a round table with like 10 different earlier versions of herself, like the mother, the activist, the student, all these different eras of her life. She was like, I can't really be with my full self if I'm like cutting them off and pushing them into a closet somewhere because they're less enlightened versions of myself. And so I think it's taught me to have a lot more compassion for not just myself, but for everybody. Wow. Yeah. Um, Did working on this book in any way alter your definition of success? Yeah, it made it a lot smaller in a really good way. Yeah. Um, Because I purposely wanted to include people who were maybe not as like widely known as I may have typically put in a book project, because I think we expect to hear from people who, you know, we've read about in newspapers or who've won huge awards. And I wanted to really make sure that it was clear that there are many, many, many valuable and enviable versions of life that do not involve media or accolades or anything like that. And it made me realize like, oh, that's actually how I think of success. So I can honor this in other people, but I can't honor it in myself. And so I really had to think about what do all these achievements that I'm admiring actually boil down to? Yeah. And for me, they all boiled down to these people have found a way to not only feel of use to their community, but that they feel a part of their community and connected to people. And that was what I realized I was lacking a lot of in my life. And so it's what inspired me to switch careers and to really kind of pay more attention to what's happening where I live versus every other shiny place on the internet. And that's really stayed with me. And I think things that are successful and happy for me now are are very small, and but but meaningful in a way that make me feel connected to myself. And I don't think I felt that a lot when I was younger and achieving things. I think I felt connected to some version of myself that just, I don't know, didn't feel very real. Did leaving New York City help? I mean, a bit, but to be honest, all of the Hudson Valley and the Catskills and all of this is very much like an enclave of the city. <laughs> and while I've made a very concerted effort to not only like hanging out with people who used to live in Brooklyn as well. Um, you know, it's still a bubble of its own and it's very divided up here. It's very like you've lived here your whole life or you've been here for the past 10 or 20 years coming from Manhattan or Brooklyn or wherever. And so I'm trying to find the space in the middle because there's lots of great thought and great work happening with people who've just moved here, but there's also really important things to learn from people who've been here for a long time and like someone we work with on our house who's a younger guy was saying he'd never been to New York City. And my my reaction seven years ago was like just incredible incredulous. I was like, How have you've never been to New York City? It's two hours away. What what? And he was like, I why do I need to go to New York? And I was like, <laughs> theater, movies, art, you know, listing off all these things. And he was like, Oh, we have all those things here. And I was like, we don't. And he was like, yeah. And he started lifting off like, you know, places he goes to see movies, yeah. places he's seen people in plays and whatever. And I just, you know, I thought I had unpacked a lot of that like city bias, but oof, I'm, I'm still working on that because that I get it. I get what they call us city. It's up here. And I, I very much deserve that label most days. So that's something <laughs> I'm still trying to figure out because I think this is still so close to New York City that it doesn't, it isn't quite a full escape. Yeah. Right. Right. I ask because I think about it every day. That's all. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, you couldn't pay me to go back. I used to joke that if I like somehow won the lottery and someone gave me like a West Village townhouse, I would move back in a second. Um, but now I, I definitely wouldn't move now. And especially, I mean, we bought our house before this area became as popular as it is right now. And, you know, people leave little real estate things all the time at our house saying like, you could sell your house for this much money. There's there's no there's no houses left up here. So everyone's like doubling the amount of their houses now. And I can't imagine selling your house. I can't imagine going anywhere else. Like this is where I feel safe and happy right now. So yeah, you could you couldn't pay me to leave right now. <laughs> I love it up here. I have another question. Going back to some of your pivots that we were talking about, you were married to a man and then your marriage ended and then you married a woman. Mm-hmm. How did you know there was something else out there for you? <laughs> I mean I think it's different for everybody. I think I've known I was queer since middle school. I, I kind of came out in middle school, not by choice, um, and then got shoved very firmly back into the closet. So mm-hmm. 
I think I always knew something else was out there, but my life looked perfect on the outside. Like I, I was very aware of what my life looked like at that moment. Like I was with someone who was very kind, very smart, just like a wonderful person. There was like nothing to complain about, about that relationship. It was, you know, every relationship has its issues, but for the most part, like that wasn't the problem. And I remember, I mean, I got married and my wedding was in Martha Stewart. Like that, that's how much mm-hmm. I fulfilled all the like check boxes of things you're supposed to do. And I remember it was after I got married, I just started to feel like, why doesn't any of this feel like it's supposed to feel like? And it, it's not as simple as like a queer issue. It was just like none of those things felt the way they were. I imagined they were going to make me feel like I had checked off every box I thought I was supposed to check off. And I was very much comparing myself to other women in the blogging sphere at the same time who were all getting married, having kids, buying houses, like all of these things. And I had like a just a literal checklist in my head of like, OK, this, then this, then this. OK, if it's not this, then maybe this next thing on the list is going to be the thing that finally makes me feel like something is right. And that's a hard place to make a pivot from because it wasn't like something was awful. It just it wasn't what I think it was supposed to be. And I think I spent like a year in therapy, both with and without my ex, just trying to figure out, like, what is this feeling I'm feeling? And I knew it was connected to queerness, but I knew that wasn't everything. And, you know, it took a year and a half of therapy for us to, like, consciously uncouple, essentially, is the, I guess, the contemporary term. Um, And it was really, really painful. And, you know, I have a lot of compassion for myself and how much of myself I had suppressed in the interest of creating what I thought everybody else wanted me to be. And then I also had to sit with how much pain that had caused for another person and another family, because I had made decisions that also brought somebody into my own confusion. And that's that's tough, because when you come out, people want you to be like incredibly celebratory. And it's just a much more nuanced thing, especially when you come out um, and you're not like, you know, 17. Right. Because I had baggage, lots of baggage. And that was really, really hard. Um, So I think I finally learned to listen to that voice now and primarily out of fear of hurting somebody else, which is not an entirely healthy place to come from, if I'm honest. But it really informed the decisions I make now because I never, ever want to do that again. And I am I am aware I will hurt people that it's just what it is to be human. I will make mistakes and I will have to undo them. But I don't think I'll make the same type of mistake. I've I've figured out now that if something feels a little off, like I need to investigate it, even if it's hard and even if it hurts somebody or hurts me, like dealing with it when I feel it is just really important. So I think it's why like therapy is a huge part of my life now, because it's the place that I feel the safest to kind of be like, hmm, I'm thinking about these things now. And why am I thinking about them so much? And what does that mean? And to have a place where someone can talk that out with you, not from a place of judgment or having any expectation about who you should be and what you should be doing, it's invaluable for me. It's interesting thinking about checking the boxes. I think the the point in my life when I checked the most boxes, I was absolutely the unhappiest I'd ever been. Me too. Same. And it's not, and that I, I, not that I still wouldn't like to be able to check a couple of those boxes since I can't check <laughs> anymore, but still. Yeah. No. And I think about that. Like I, I, I am so happy to be in the relationship I'm in and I'm so happy to be married to Julia, but I think, I don't think I ever thought I was going to get married again, let alone so fast. Um, but I really, I had done such intense work in therapy. I mean, very intense work to just try to figure out like, how the hell did I get myself to this place and how do I get out of it? And it let me go into different relationships after that, knowing exactly what I wanted and what I didn't want. And so it kind of sped up that process for me. And that's something I'm still learning how to like slow down a little bit because I just kind of only know how to go into like super serious mode very quickly with people. And I want to have like really intense discussions right away. And I need to like kind of taper them yeah. off a little bit. <laughs> but, you know, being in a therapy Works program. Gross. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's great for a therapy program because all we do now at school is just talk about really intense stuff all the time. But mm-hmm. I think it prepares you to be around that level of intensity as a daily part of your work. So I'm kind of grateful for it now. 
What do you still want to do? Hmm. I would really like to learn ASL. That's like at the top of my list right now. Okay. Um, I feel like I've become very aware of how limited my communication skills are. And I think of myself as someone who like really prizes communication. Yeah. And then I realize I can't communicate with a lot of people. And that's that's my fault, not theirs. And especially when it, you come, when it comes to therapy, I don't think I'm the perfect therapist for someone who is deaf or hard of hearing. But I think that there are very few therapists who consider accessibility and just access in general for therapeutic services. So that's something that's like, I'd really like to learn how to speak a different language, but I'd like to start with ASL. Yeah. Um, so that's at the top of my list. And honestly, I, I'm very happy right now. I, I never thought I'd be back in school. I never thought I'd be doing things that weren't rooted in like media. I think I got that like New York media. I mean, you guys know this better than anyone. Like the New York media scene is so intoxicating and it is, there's so much power there and there's so much just like intrigue and I, there's so much achievement with awards and notoriety. And I really got sucked into that. Yeah. And I think now that I'm further away from that than ever, I just didn't realize how happy I could be and not need more of that. It's just a lot easier to be happy now that I'm not connecting any of my happiness to that particular system. Like life actually just feels a lot easier, which yeah. is nice. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember the last time we've had on such an evolved, happy and wise person? I Jen? do not. I do not. <laughs> I do not. It's very refreshing. It's very, it's very wonderful, actually. You have a lot of wisdom, Grace, like really just a ton of wisdom. Well, let's talk again in five years when I can tell you that I'm sure everything I'm saying right now is like <laughs> completely wrong and I've learned some other way. <laughs> but that's such a wise thing to say. And also that's part of the adventure. I mean, that's the thing. Yeah. It's fun that we oh, it's fun that we don't know everything. It's fun that we continue yeah. to learn. You know, it's sort of the best yeah. part of it, I think. I feel like one of the things that stood out to me from this book that finally clicked in my head, and I've been learning this lesson for years, but it just finally cemented itself, was that I just don't think people who are raised and socialized as women, I feel like we're taught, we're taught to say sorry all the time, but I feel like we're taught to not actually internalize what it is to like just accept a mistake and then move on without moralizing it yeah. or adding shame into the equation. And I think the second I realized like, oh yeah, I'm going to hurt people. I'm going to make mistakes. I'm not going to do those things intentionally, but they're going to happen. And the sooner I learned to just say, oh, I'm really sorry about that and learn from it and move on. It just makes that like journey feel a lot more fun. Yeah. And I used to just think like, oh, there's so many mistakes I could be making and how can I avoid every single one of them? And it was just such a fool's errand. And now I feel like yeah, I'm I'm going to do like it, with this book. I had some people who were upset about how their interviews came out or how their photos came out yeah. or you know, any of the millions yeah. of things that happen when you deal with a large amount of people in a project and when that happened with my last book, I internalized every single bit of feedback as like, "Oh, and I'm a horrible person." Yep. And with and with this book, I was just like, "Oh, wow, I totally didn't see that, but now it's all I can see. You're right. Like I I see how that oversight or that over edit or whatever could be interpreted in the way that you're feeling. And the only thing I can do here is say like, yeah, and, and thank you for telling me. And I'm really sorry. Is there anything we can do to fix it? If not, I just have to, you know, make amends the best I can and then move on and not see it as a sign that I am like a terrible person. And I think that's one of those, you know, last vestiges of capitalism is just like that all mistakes equal I am a bad person. But it's yeah. just, I'm just a person. Like we inherently are going to make mistakes. So I think now that I better understand that, I'm not afraid of saying sorry when it's warranted. And I accept that it's something I'm going to say a billion times probably before I die. And that's okay. I hope I learn not to repeat the same mistakes at least. Now, I always find that I think apologizing is a power move. It just mm. is. Yeah. I used to see it as like an admission of guilt. And I'm, and I, that was really problematic for me. Yeah. The right kind of apology, right? With like real accountability. I mean, because there is like a rupture mm -hmm. and repair situation. You're going to fuck up. Can you repair it? And how how do you repair it? How do you show up in your apology? If it's just a knee mm -hmm. jerk, I'm sorry, that's kind of about you and self-soothing. 
I don't know that that always does what you want it and need it to do, you know, or what the other person needs it to do. You know, it's like, yeah, it's so sticky. You know, I learned the first time I learned that was from an employee or a person on our team who was much younger than me. And I really I mean, ageism goes both ways. Right. And I applied that to him very much and was like, oh, my gosh, you're a kid. Like, how am I taking advice from you? But we were having it. It was the first era of like negative comments because Design Sponge existed in this like blissful sphere of the early internet where like we didn't really get like really angry commenters until a few years in. And you were getting people who just were constantly upset about something. And I took it all as just like, I got to go to war with every single one of these commenters to prove how they are factually inaccurate. And Max just looked at me and was like, it doesn't cost you anything to just say you're sorry they're feeling that way. And I was like, no. But, but they're wrong and they're wrong. Right. And he was like, it doesn't matter. It does not matter whether they're right or wrong. Like, just acknowledge their feelings and move on. Yeah. And it was like yeah. this simple little moment where I realized, like, I have not been fully valuing this team member because of their age. And I just kind of was being an ageist jerk. And then I realized, like, oh, yeah, this younger person who's real familiar with comment culture was just like, just acknowledge their feelings and move on. Like, what, why are you making such a big deal? And now I think I found the middle ground there because then I turned that into like, well, I must say I'm sorry for all negative comments and everything is my responsibility in the opposite direction. Right. And I've finally found a mid ground of I feel very comfortable now being like, yep, this is not my responsibility. You don't get to speak to me this way. I'll have a conversation with you if you'd like, but I'm not going to just let you dump or project things onto me that are actually not mine to be accountable for. Um, But, you know, it's taken me 20 years on the Internet to find that. Right. And in between. Right. And the boundaries, yeah. the boundaries being more about, you know, just have just starting to have boundaries. Right. And if you're an open person, if you're a person who's like a very intimate person, sometimes boundaries can be really, really, really tricky. I mean, I think they're tricky for everyone, but they are deceptively hard. Yeah, they're exactly. Yeah. They're in there's such a like a buzzword on the Internet right now is like there's so many like pastel colored, you know. Ugh, yeah pictures on Instagram of like how to set boundaries and none of it's that simple. And, you know, it's, it's just always a lot more complicated than it seems on the internet. But I do think I am finally learning how to set them because, you know, sometimes and almost always they, they tend to elicit a pushback because if you have not set them before, people are not, are not happy about feeling like they've suddenly felt a wall. So, and especially if you've been raised as a woman, that's that's incredibly tricky to feel like you've disappointed somebody or upset somebody. So that's something I'm I'm getting closer to feeling like I'm fully have fully unpacked that, but it's still there a little bit. What's your relationship like with social media now? Hmm. When it comes to well, I don't use Twitter at all anymore. I've every week I'm like I should delete this. I should just delete this, yeah. right? And mm-hmm. then I just don't. Um, Instagram. I primarily it's a place for me to share other people's work when I feel like it. Um, but even that became, I could still feel the hook of like, oh, I did this thing once a week. So now I have to do it every week on the same day. And I would say I'm like 90% free of that trap, but it still happens. Um, so I, I don't feel any investment in those two forms of social media. When it comes to TikTok, that's a whole other story. <laughs> and I, for the most part, love TikTok, um, primarily because I do not post anything. And I follow, I'm just a weird lurker and I'm like 40 years older than everybody else on that app as a complete fetus. And it is wild to me, like how every other video is about someone being born in like 2005 and thinking that they're old. Wow. But, but it's just so, at least, at least right now, it is so creative. It is so easy to find your way into a kind of counterculture moment. And that's really hard for me to find on social media, like on Instagram. I can constantly click, like, don't show me this. I don't like this. No matter what, I am going to get pushed flat tummy tee, some swimsuit thing and something else. It's just not my world. Right. And on TikTok, like within 10 minutes, that app figured out exactly who I was and things about myself I hadn't even admitted Mm -hmm. to myself yet. And (laughs) it blew. And I'm sure some part of that is terrifying and big brothery, but I just like having a place where I can consume like creative content and not have to produce any of it yeah and to just be a fan like i am just a fan yeah and i love it i'm just like liking things commenting i'm just all over the place (laughs) just being like an a non-producer of content and (laughs) 
It's so fun. I love it. It's, you know, it's not without its problems, but I have enjoyed getting to understand social media as just a fan. So where can people find you? For the time being, I'm still on Instagram at the Design Sponge handle. I probably will sh- close all that down um, once I graduate because it's being on social media as a therapist is really frowned upon. And I'm still kind of pushing back against mm-hmm. that in class a lot. But I think for the most part, a lot of my personal life exists on the Internet. And some part of me thinks that's not a big deal. And some part of me understands why that's important to not have at the forefront if you're going to be working in the field that I'd like to work in. So. I think for the next two or three years, I will still be at Design Sponge on Instagram. Um, But other than that, I think in a few years, I think I will blissfully be free of social media. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for coming on. This has been just a fantastic episode. Thank you, Grace. It's been so good. Thanks so much, Grace. I was awesome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Everything is Fine. We are your hosts. I'm Jen Romolini. And I'm Kim France. If you like the show... Please rate and review it wherever you're listening to podcasts. It really helps people find our show. If you want to support the show and support the production of the show, we have a Patreon. You can throw us a couple bucks every month. Um, It really helps us with production costs. And you also will get access to bonus episodes and exclusive blog content. If you want to follow us on social media, you can find the the show on Instagram at EIF Podcast. We're on Twitter. We're on Facebook. You can email us at everythingisfinethepodcast at gmail.com. And you can find Kim on her blog, girlsofacertainage.com. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.